back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. And I skipped last week's Friday's episode. I, My week got away from me. Uh, life with the new puppy and some craziness at work, it just didn't get done. So I'm still debating whether I'm going to try to do three episodes this week uh, to get the rest in for the season. Season five, of course, being where we're talking about Jim Henson and his creations. Or I might extend it another week or I might drop an episode. I don't know. We'll just have to see how this week plays out. Hopefully it won't be as crazy as last week. But I'm glad to be back. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for joining me today. Today we're talking about a lesser known corner of Jim Henson Productions. At least I consider it a lesser known. Hopefully it's not. I mean, it would be great if everybody knew about this one, but it's called The Storyteller, a TV series that came out in 1987 and featured a mixture of live action and puppet performances. Mostly live action. The puppet performances are either costuming of sorts um, or scene setting or kind of secondary characters, but uh, they're in there and they're still amazing what they are able to do and how they create mood and tone with the creatures that, that they have developed is absolutely amazing. At the beginning of each episode, the storyteller would lead us into the story with when people told themselves their past with stories, explained their present with stories, foretold their future with stories, the best place by the fire was kept for the storyteller. In the 80s and 90s, we, we saw quite a few of these kinds of shows. The storyteller, there was also a great one called Erie, Indiana, which was kind of like Goosebumps, but set in a imaginary town here in Indiana, which I always really liked. Um, had one of the guys, or was, was it the kid from Hocus Pocus? It might have been the brother from Hocus Pocus, now that I think about it. Uh, you also had... Um, are, are You Afraid of the Dark on Nickelodeon, where it was, uh, you know, each episode told a different story. And it was that art of storytelling that I really liked as a kid. I think that's why I really liked the scary stories you tell in the dark kind of books, the, where each chapter was kind of a different story. And I'm not a big short story person, but I really like that you feel like you're almost around a campfire being told a story. And that is what I love about this kind of storytelling. I also have a soft spot for storytelling where the narrator interacts with the audience. They break the fourth wall. Instead of the author or director or screenwriter telling anyone a story disconnected from you know the individual in the seat, it's more personal it's intimate it invites us into the story with them almost as if we play a part in what's going on telling us secrets no one else knows kate di camillo does it in the tale of despero cynthia ham brody ashton jody meadows in one of my favorite books of all time my lady jane marcus suzak does it in the book thief jay christoph in Nevernight. then in movies we have high fidelity or ferris bueller's day off or kiss kiss bang bang or amelie or fiddle around the roof and that's just a few of them but when a character or a narrator talks directly to you as an observer I don't know. I really like that. It's a lot of fun. The literary device doesn't always work, but in the hands of expert storytellers, it can be really, really effective. And that's what we get in the storyteller, a gentle man played by John Hurt. It was my first experience with John Hurt. And because of this, his voice, I could always immediately pick it out and I would get so excited to see him. Um, he is, of course, Ollivander in the Harry Potter series. He shows up as a dragon in the BBC series Merlin, which is fantastic. You should definitely watch that one. If you want, you can stop in season four and don't go on to season five because we all know how the Arthur legend ends and it's just no good. Um, so I, for a long time, stopped and refused to watch it. And then I lost a bet and I had to watch it and it broke my heart. It's still... I still hold it against the weirdos who made me do that. Um, 
but it his voice just I don't know it's almost a part of my childhood and when he came when he showed up as the war doctor and doctor who oh just love him so much but anyway so the storyteller is sitting next to a fire with his trusty dog almost looks like the dog from um Fraggle Rock, which we'll hopefully talk a little bit about later on in the season. Uh, and they're telling us stories, us directly, because the storyteller is always looking at the camera and directly into our homes as if we're in the same room with him. So according to Wikipedia, the series retold various European folktales, particularly ones considered obscure in Western culture, created with a combination of actors and puppets. Each story was written in a language and traditional style in keeping with old folktales and the storyteller's dog was kind of an everyman character asking questions as an audience member maybe would and interacting with the story and the storyteller. They do some really cool things with silhouettes and shadows in the storytelling as well. There's definitely a an oral storytelling feel to it. Um, if you've never been to your local library and seen a really good storyteller come in and tell stories or to a festival when they do it as well, it is it is something special. These people are absolutely amazing. So it was a short-lived, it was for a time, um, there was this short-lived special called the Jim Henson Hour, which was supposed to be a lot like the wonderful world of Disney, but with Muppets, which I must have missed that because I don't really remember that. I think I saw bits and pieces of it, but not like sitting down like we would for the wonderful world of Disney, which we did all of the time. And in the secret of the Muppets episode, where they kind of did a behind the scenes of the Muppets, Henson said they were purposely, they purposely gave the storyteller a half puppet appearance, notably large ears and a prosthetic nose. And it resembled the BFG from Roald Dahl's classic book. But then they thought more subtle facial prosthetics will be would be more effective. So that's kind of the look he was given and stayed with. There was a later spinoff where a different storyteller shared Greek myths, but I didn't really get into that one. I didn't have John Hurt. So I thought we'd go through the stories today of the original series, and I'll rank them from my least favorite, which just means nothing because I love them all, <laughs> to my favorite. And if you would like to watch sometime and have an Amazon Prime membership, you can stream it for free. So there are nine episodes in the first series, and number nine for me goes to one called The Luck Child, which includes elements from the German folktales The Griffin and The Devil with the Three Golden Hairs. It's the story about the seventh son of a seventh son, who is often referred to as a luck child. A wise man prophesies the child will one day rule, so a cruel king who is worried about that plots to have the baby killed. So he travels along with his chancellor, I guess, to find the boy and pays off the parents for the child after threatening to kill the entire family. And his plan is to toss the baby over the side of a cliff, but the chancellor pushes them both over. But because the baby is the seventh son of a seventh son and he's a luck child, he lives and is found by a wonderful couple and is given the name Lucky. And he's also played by Scrooge's nephew, Fred, in The Muppet Christmas Carol. What's really cool about this is, is you see some fairly famous actors or ones that you definitely recognize and other things in these and they're very young and it's kind of awesome uh so mo most of the things i point out are like oh i had this person in it because i get excited about that kind of thing again imdb is my friend every time i'm watching something i'm usually on imdb so the evil king however is eaten by a griffin so he's out of the way and now the chancellor is ruling he is now king and he's collecting taxes when he comes across lucky and recognizes him as the luck child the the adoptive parents are like, yeah, we find him, found him 17 years ago. 
on the side of a cliff. Um, so he's like, oh, I know who this kid is. So he hands the young man a royal proclamation to go to the castle. And so without any choice in the matter, Lucky leaves his home and is on his way to through the kingdom to the castle when he stumbles into the den of thieves and meets a man. The man drugs Lucky, who falls asleep, and while he sleeps, the man reads the proclamation and finds out that really the king is planning to kill him. Um, in fact, he has asked the queen to chop him up into a thousand pieces, which is intense. So the man feels bad for the boy, so he changes it to say marriage, do this without delay instead of kill, and he actually moves the body the just kind of sleeping body closer to the kingdom. So when he wakes up, he's right there. And so when the king gets back to the castle after collecting the taxes, he's kind of upset because Lucky is about to marry his most beloved daughter. And he, Lucky has written approval for it because the thief had changed the proclamation. So he says that Lucky must prove his worth by bringing back a golden feather from the griffin. So just so happens that his friend, the poisoner thief, is the one that takes care of the griffin and is willing to help. So while... The thief is feeding the monster and giving him his daily scratchies. He pulls out one of the feathers, gives it to Lucky. He also tricks the griffin into telling him how the poor ferryman that brought Lucky to the griffin's island can break his curse and be released from, you know, the, the chore of rowing daily. So all he has to do is get someone to take the oar from him. Off topic... See, the ferryman is played by the knight that guards the grail in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> so, like, he's got the feather. He's got an extra chest full of treasure that the thief had given him from the Griffin's den. And he returns to the king who is reluctant but has to agree to the wedding. But so enamored by the jewels, the king sets out to the Griffin's cave to get some more. And on his trip, the... He's saying, you know, you're you're rowing too slow, ferryman. And he's like, would you like the oar? And so the king then is stuck rowing forever. And Lucky, the luck child, lives happily ever after uh, with his princess. So I, I like that one. It's not um, it's not my favorite. I, I To be honest, my favorites are probably the ones towards the beginning of the DVD. Because I would always just start at the beginning. And then I get distracted and would stop. So it's the ones that I've seen the most. And this one I hadn't seen as many times. Uh, the Griffin is fantastic. It almost reminds me of one of the Fireys from Labyrinth. And I think Brian Henson might voice the Griffin. Um, he just got a quirky way of talking, which is a lot of fun. So that was my number nine. Number eight goes to Fear Not, which is from another early German folktale about a young man who knows no fear. And this apparently is upsetting to his father because his son lives a life without consequence because he's not afraid of anything. So he sends Fear Not out into the world to learn how to shudder. So he, Fear Not does that. And, but he leaves behind this woman that he is in love with, doesn't know her name, but leaves her behind. Just to note that this woman is played by a very young Gabrielle Anwar from Burn Notice and Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken and Disney's The Three Musketeers and Sin of a Woman. Uh, so it was fun to see her so young in the rewatch. On his travels, uh, Fear Not meets a shifty, I guess, yet lovable tinker who promises to help him. When the tinker himself fails to make Fear Not shudder, he thinks yelling at him is going to do the job. He takes him to this pond that is infested with the Sisters of the Deep. They're kind of oh, like sirens that invite him into the water to take him to the monster in the deep that 
looks a bit like if Gollum from the animated Hobbit movie, if you're familiar with that, met a catfish and then showed up on Star Wars. That is what that's what this monster looks like. He looks a lot like he looks a lot like a catfish, but he also looks a lot like Gollum. But then the dude and what's it, General Akbar maybe is the name. Um, and there was, there's another guy in the original Star Wars, A New Hope, one of the pilots that it kind of looks like. It's just a mixture of all of these things. Anyway, when the monster still doesn't make Fear Not Shudder, the tinker takes him to a haunted house where he survives the night with this creepy ghoul uh, who whose body is split in half. I don't know. And he ends up killing the ghoul somehow and the tinker comes in and they fall and they find this vast treasure hidden in a room upstairs. So now they're both very rich and fear not because the tinker's been helping splits the money with them. So all of these travels have not taught him how to shudder. So he decides, you know, what? I'm just going to go home. My, my dad's not going to be happy about this, but I'm going to go home. And when he gets there, he finds out his lady love has fallen ill. And so, and she's on death's door and that is what finally teaches him to shudder. Uh, the fact that he could potentially, you know, lose the lady that he loves, even though he doesn't even know her name. And of course, Gabrielle Anwar lives and everybody lives happily ever, ever after. Uh, the character of Fear Not himself is not my favorite. That that acting is probably why I really like the tinker. And the scene at the haunted house with the ghoul who's split in half um, is is impressive. It does remind me a little bit of something you would see on Are You Afraid of the Dark? So that was number eight. <laughs> number seven goes to The True Bride. This one felt a little unfinished to me in the rewatch. And again, I'm not great at short stories. I don't necessarily love to be dropped into a story and not given a lot of context. Um, I like to know what leads up to situations and you don't always get that. You kind of have to infer or guess or pretend it's not important. And that's hard for me. Um, if you have ever watched me take like an MBTI test for personalities, they're like, do you like to go to parties? And it's like, you can't just say that to me. You have to tell me what kind of party it is. And do I know people that are there? And is it at somebody's house I'm familiar with or somewhere else? Am I going to have to mingle? Are they going to play charades? I have a lot of questions about this party. That's how I feel about short stories. You just have to give me more context for me to like them. I've gotten way off topic though. Um, so this one, again, feels a little unfinished. I needed more information and explanation that I never got. But it's based on another early German folktale about a girl who gets taken by a troll to become his servant. And the troll is dead set on making her life as miserable as possible. He gives her impossible tasks to complete in hopes of, I guess, getting to punish her. But she is unexpectedly visited by a thought lion who completes everything for her. He's almost like an Aslan character, I guess. Why is she visited by the lion? Don't know. Who is the lion? Don't know. Oh, so that's the frustrating part. But so it goes. So one of the tasks was to build a palace overnight. The lion tells her to sleep. And when she wakes up, to her astonishment, is this beautiful castle that she's laying next to. Troll Daddy is pretty miffed. And in his anger, he falls into a bottomless room and dies. <laughs> dark so our young girl is left to live happily in her castle where she falls in love with the gardener played by the one and only sean bean what yes and he doesn't die in this which is fantastic that's a spoiler the one and only boromir and ned stark shows up in the storyteller as a gardener 
They are set to be married, but he disappears. So the girl goes looking for him and discovers that he has been enchanted by a lady troll who is the daughter of the troll that had captured her. Um, and is set to marry the troll lady. That's when the thought lion shows up again. Why? Don't know. And delivers to the girl three gifts. Kind of like in a walnut shell that she cracks open in these items help her convince the lady troll to give her a night with her beloved and so she tries two nights and nothing happens she's crying over him trying to wake him up he's in a very deep sleep on the third night before that evening the the prince is kind of walking on the castle and there's windows and apparently very high dungeon because these prisoners are yelling at him how can you how can you like turn down this lady who has been singing and crying for you every single night? She loves you so much. And he's like, what lady? Because he's been enchanted. But then he wakes up. He does. He purposely doesn't sleep because he wants to make sure that he meets this woman. And it is his true love, his true bride um, and breaks the enchantment. And so then they rush back on the back of the thought lion why he's there, I don't know. To their castle, the lady troll follows them and she ends up falling in the same bottle, Miss room and dies just like her father <laughs> that end that was number seven number six is sap sorrow which is basically cinderella about a weird oh, feathery twiggy dirt disguise cinderella so sap sorrow another indiana jones and the last crusade alum the lady who played elsa the love interest turncoat of indy is the put upon of the three sisters the father the king is set to wed but can only marry the woman whose finger fits the ring of the dead queen which seems weird uh, one day the sisters are playing with the ring and Sapsaro kind of absentmindedly puts it on and because the law says so she now has to marry her father this is probably the to me the darkest of all of them uh it just i find that terribly disturbing they're like well this is what the law says uh, and who made these, why couldn't the king change the law? I don't know. So she asks for three special dresses to be made. And while she's waiting on them, her animal friends, because animal friends make things in Cinderella, make her a suit of feathers, twigs, and dirt. It's just a really gross disguise. So when the day of the wedding finally arrives, she puts on this new disguise and runs away. She ends up as a servant in the castle of another kingdom. And still wearing her awful costume, meets the prince. He's kind of dismissive at first, but they form a very loose friendship. And that's when she starts showing up to parties in the fancy gowns she has made, she had made for her wedding to her, to her father. The prince falls in love with the mysterious girl who disappears every evening. And during the last evening, she runs away and leaves behind you guessed it, a shoe. All of the ladies of the land are then invited to the castle to try on the shoe. And when Sapsaro finally decides to go give it a whirl, she picks the day when her sisters are there and discovers that her father is dead. The shoe, of course, fits. The animals come and take her nasty disguise away and leave her standing in a beautiful gown. So that was Sapsaro. That was number six. Just a few more left. Here we go. The soldier and death. This one is actually based on an early Russian folktale retold in English by Arthur Ransom um, and is kind of inspired by the Godfather death. So a soldier returns home after 20 years at war and all he's really got on his person is three biscuits and a knapsack. And on his way, he meets three beggars and uh, he just doesn't feel like he can 
after giving the first beggar a biscuit, he doesn't feel like he can short the other one. So he ends up giving everything away. And each of these then give him something. Um, one gives him a ruby whistle, one the jolliest dance, and the final man who gets the biscuit, despite the soldier who was really hungry at the time, he gives him a pack, a sack of sorts, uh, a, well, a pack of playing cards and then a sack that he can tell anything. He'll say like, what is this? And they'll go, it's a sack. And he's like, all right, get in it. And they have to get in it. And so he ends up staying at an inn because he had got a flock of geese to go into the bag. And that's how he's paying for his room. He's like, hey, give me a room and I'll give you all of these geese. And while he's there, he's looking out over this castle and the, the bar tavern owner the place he's staying, he's like, that's that's a haunted house, an abandoned castle. It's overrun by devils. You shouldn't go there. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going to go. <laughs> so he does. He goes over there. He plays cards with some devils. He ends up winning um, and he gets 40 barrels of gold. They try to kill him, but then he orders one of them into the ca- into the bag. And so he he's now kind of in charge of these devils. Quickly becoming rich and famous because he got the devils out of the palace um, that was owned by the czar, his his luck kind of starts to run short. His son gets really sick, gets really ill. He's not what, sh- sure what to do. He doesn't know how to help. So he ends up calling one of the devils who is now subserving it to him. And the devil gives him this little glass goblet that allows the owner to see death. If you look through the goblet, you can see where death is in the room of... If he's at the foot of the bed, then you can sprinkle the liquid that is in the goblet on the person and they'll be okay. If the de- if the death is at the head of the bed, there's nothing that can be done. He's going to take you. So luckily for this soldier, uh, death is at the foot of his son's bed. So he sprinkles some of the, the blessed water, I guess, on the kid and the kid lives. Um, then he's called in to because the czar is very ill. And so he's called in and he looks because now the soul, everybody knows that he has this goblet. He looks and unfortunately death is at the head of the bed for the, for the czar. Because the czar has been so good to him, he attempts then to make a deal with death. Let the czar live, take my life instead. Death agrees. Um, and so the czar is healed and now the soldier is on his deathbed. And while he lays on his deathbed, he says, hey, death, do you know what this is? And death's like, yeah, it's a sack. And he goes, get into the sack. So he has trapped death into the sack. So now he's not going to die because death can't take him, right? So years go by and the soldier starts to notice that there are all these people that are kind of looking for death. They are either very ill or very old and all their loved ones have had already been taken. They're just kind of waiting to die and he realizes they can't because he has death trapped. So he decides to let death go and then death refuses to take the soldier's life. So he is old and he's weary and he just wants himself to die. So he travels down to the underworld And there's devils at the gates. And of course, they're the same devils from before. And so the soldier says, ask them to give him 200 souls and a map to heaven. And that's what they do because they are scared of this man with the sack who can capture them. So he's got his souls. He's got his map to heaven. He gets to the gates um, and he asks to be let in with the souls while begging forgiveness from God. But he's denied 
entry by the gatekeeper. So he gives this sack to one of the souls that he had captured and says, you know what, this is what you're going to do. You're going to put me into this sack. And when you get onto the, uh, to the other side, when you're in heaven, you'll, you'll let me go, but there is no memory in heaven. So the man is then stuck in the sack forever. So he faces the same fate that everybody else had faced because of him. The end. That one's kind of, that one's kind of sad. Uh, <laughs> a little scary too, to be completely honest. Um, it was one that I was not familiar with. The other ones, there are elements to them that were very familiar to me, but this one, not so much. That was number five. Number four goes to the Heartless Giant. Again, another early German folktale. Um, and it's about this, so this heartless giant, this giant who has terrorized this kingdom has been captured and imprisoned. But then this young prince befriends him, Prince Leo, and he, Leo has no knowledge of this troll's or this giant's previous history with the kingdom. And so he befriends this giant and ends up letting him go. Well, then he is free this giant to wreak the same havoc that he had wreaked before so this prince's older brothers go after the giant to try to recapture him but they don't come back so leo then has to set out to find the giant himself and once he finds him it's a little bit and it feels a little similar to jack and the beanstalk to me leo decides um so apparently the giant acts this way behaves this way because he doesn't have a heart he has hidden his heart and so leo decides that he has to find the giant's heart but this isn't an easy task it's hidden so he thinks well i'll kind of trick the giant into tell me where it is so the giant's like oh so he is now a servant to the giant um trying to glean this information so first he says it's an it's in an egg um, and a duck in a well in a church in a lake mountain far, far away. Not an easy task, but he ends up going there, finding the egg. There's the duck in the well in the, <laughs> on the island. He finds it, but there is no heart in there. And the, the giant's like, you really think I would tell you? And so then he's like, you know what? It's under the porch. Um, that's where, you know, or it was in a cupboard. And so he's cleaning all the cupboards and he goes, well, and he tries to tell the giant, I clean these cupboards because it's only right that if it's, this is where your heart is being held, they should be clean and new. Um, and the giant's like, really, you think that I would tell you where my heart is? Eventually the giant then, you know, tells him this is where it's at. Um, Leo finds the heart and brings it to the giant and I should mention that the giant had the ability to kind of turn all of the people to stone. So all of the prince's brothers have been turned to stone in his, his land right in front of the house. So what Leo can do, he can squeeze the heart and end the giant's life, but he doesn't want to do that. That just doesn't seem right. He's not that kind of a person, but the brothers are. So they take the heart, they squeeze it and killed it. And Leo feels really bad because then he has broken the promise because he promised that if the giant would free his brothers and the other townsfolk that he had turned into stone, he would not squeeze the heart and kill him. But that happened. This was, it's a bit of a downer now that I say it out loud. It's a bit of a downer of one, but it's a lot of fun. Um, this one didn't have as many people in it that I really knew, but I, but I enjoyed it. I, the giant is very similar looking to the trolls and the true bride. Um, but it, it was fun. I, I really liked this. Now, number three has a lot of people 
you'll know. Um, it's called The Three Ravens. It includes Jolie Richardson as the princess, Miranda Richardson as the witch, um, Jonathan Price as the king. There's just a lot of people in here that I was really familiar with, and it was really fun to see them. So this one comes, get you guessed it, from another early German folktale based on the six swans about a widower king who marries an evil witch. The witch turns into her her stepsons into ravens because she's mean. The curse can only be broken if the remaining daughters stay silent for three years, three months, three weeks, and three days, which she does. She kind of goes out into the forest, lives on her own so that she's not tempted to talk to anybody. But her silence gets complicated when she meets a prince and marries him, even though they've never spoken a word. This feels a little bit like Ariel, Disney's Ariel, <laughs> Little Mermaid. No connection, absolutely, you know, at all there. But it just felt familiar to me. So, and then she discovers that her evil stepmother is now the stepmother of her husband. So she's in the castle with them and she does no why she's not talking so when they start to have babies the evil witch starts to take the babies making the prince and the entire kingdom believe the princess has kind of gone insane until the three years three months three weeks and three days pass and her brothers return to human form except for one because she did it a few minutes early broke the curse a few minutes early so one is stuck with a raven wing for an arm um, but then all of her children come back and they live happily ever after <laughs> so this one uh again felt familiar there's um an author jessica day george who did a lot of fairy tale adaptations and this felt like something she would have written it was familiar to me during the rewatch and i really liked that one number two goes to a story short and it's from an early celtic folktale and an adaptation of stone soup and it features the storyteller himself and that's why i really like this one it's He's in, having a rough time. Our beloved storyteller is a beggar and tricks the castle cook into helping him make a soup from a stone by adding, you know, to the pot a lot of ingredients to make it taste better. So he's claiming, oh, it's a it's stone soup, but really it has carrots and celery and all of these flavors in it um, that he tricked the cook into using. So when the cook realizes he's been swindled, been bam, you know, bamboozled, he asks the king to boil the storyteller alive. Instead, the king offers a deal. The storyteller will receive a gold coin for every story he tells for each day of the year. And if he finds himself at a day when he doesn't have a story to tell, then he'll be boiled alive. So 364 days have passed and the storyteller is out of stories. Last day and he's out of stories. And on that day, he meets a magical beggar who steals his wife, turns him into a flea, and tricks the kitchen cook once again. And at the end of the day, when the king calls for his story, the storyteller tells the king, I don't really have a story, but let me tell you what happened to me today. And so he tells him the true tale of this, his adventures of meeting this magical beggar. The storyteller's wife, uh, so, and they, he lives happily ever after. The storyteller's wife is played by Mrs. Bennett from the 2005 Pride and Prejudice movie. <laughs> That's your little fun fact about that one. And my number one favorite pick, because it was the, if I remember correctly, it is the first one on the DVD. It was the first one that played on Amazon. So it has to be the first one that played on the DVD. And that goes to Hans, my hedgehog, based on an early German folktale of the same name. It starts with a farmer and his wife desperate to have a baby, so desperate that she claims, I would love it even if it was covered with in quills like a hedgehog. 
which is exactly what happens. So the mother loves him. The father resents him. So once Hans is all grown up and he does look like a hedgehog, he leaves to find a place where he can't hurt anyone and no one can hurt him. He lives happily for some time alone in the woods with the forest creatures as friends until one day this king who is lost in the woods comes to him and asks for help. Can you help me, you know, get back to my home? Hans agrees to lead him out of the forest. I should probably mention... (laughs) just because I think it's funny that Hans rides a giant rooster instead of a horse. Uh, So he leads the king out, grateful for the help the king offers to give Hans the first thing that greets him at his castle. The king thinks it's going to be his dog, but instead it's his daughter, the princess of sweetness and pie. So the princess and Hans are set to be married, and on their wedding night, Hans plays her music that kind of lulls her to sleep, and when she wakes up, she finds a pelt of quills as soft as feathers on the ground by the fire and sees her husband um, in, out in the night talking to animals in the form of a handsome young man. He tells her he is bewitched and if she can keep her mouth shut for just one more night, one night, the curse will be lifted and he'll remain a man. But of course she can't. That morning at breakfast, she's talking to her mom and her mom's like, you know what? We've been investigating this. This is what you need to do. When this happens, because the mother knew that this happened, apparently, when he takes off his quills, toss it into the fire, and the and the bewitchment would be over. And so she kind of spills the beans, the princess does, that, you know, yes, she has seen these quills. This is how it's going to go. And instead of just laying there, instead of just letting things be and getting through another night, she decides to throw the quills into the fire. And so now he is stuck being a hedgehog forever. So he rides off on his rooster and the princess goes looking for him. She wears out three pairs of iron shoes until one day she finally finds him in a cottage. And after telling him her story, she embraces him and confesses her love and loyalty and the spell is lifted. That, that's it. That was my favorite. <laughs> Again, I, I think it's because it was the first one that was always up and so I've seen it the most. But I really like that one. It's a lot of fun. few interesting tidbits. Sir John Hurt loved working on this series and wished it would have lasted for more than one season. Jim Henson also planned to use more detailed folk tales in the Creature Shop to make hour-long episodes, but that never happened. Steve Barron was selected to direct the pilot Hans My Hedgehog, and Jim Henson was already familiar with his work because Barron directed two music videos for A Labyrinth that came out in 1986, of course. Barron persuaded Henson to shoot the series on 35mm film rather than video and developed its unique visual style. All subsequent directors, because I think there was different directors for each of the episodes as that often happens with television shows were told to absorb this style before directing their own installments series writer anthony mingala even incorporated baron's use of silhouettes years later when he directed the english patient which came out in 1996 and our final piece of tidbit information piece of tidbit that made no sense our final tidbit little piece of information three the number three often plays a bit, you know, in folklore, three parts often re- represent the past, the present, and the future, which were mentioned in the introduction to the narration. So they started to use um, the number three, which is featured in every episode of the series, like in Hans My Hedgehog, how she wears out three pairs of iron shoes. They also interpret it as a cycle of life, life, death, and then rebirth. So they use three a lot, which I thought was interesting. And when you go back to do the rewatch, you start to notice that, the oh, here's the three. They, the soldier meets three beggars. 
you know, so you see it kind of over and over and over again. But that is the storyteller. Jim Henson's the storyteller. It's one of my favorite things. Um, I, I, have, I can't tell you how many times I've actually watched it. I hope that you will check it out if you haven't already to just enjoy it as well. Enjoy John Hurt. Man, do I miss John Hurt. So enjoy him. Soak all of that in. And thank you for so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals, just like your dear listener who likes to talk about random things in pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about, they can join in on the fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today. And I